Would you... Oh, would you like to make some money? Yeah, maybe. Would you be willing to say you wrote that letter and stick by it? I get the idea. Yeah, maybe. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 38. It is our first episode of the new year. Let's find out what Erica has in store for us. I chose Meet John Doe from 1941, directed by Frank Capra, written by Robert Riskin, and starring Gary Cooper, Barbara Stanwyck, Walter Brennan, James Gleason, and Edward Arnold. It's about a grassroots political campaign that's created by a newspaper columnist with the involvement of a hired homeless man. This turned out to be a little bit of an odd one for me. I feel kind of conflicted. I think I feel similarly to you. Let's find out if it's for the same reasons. I went in expecting one thing and then came out feeling another way. Expecting one thing because you had seen it before and you expected it to evoke a certain response? Yes, I saw it years and years ago and not since then. And I knew on roughly the evening of November 7th that this was the one that I wanted to go with. (laughs) It felt absolutely right. Okay. And I still was surprised by it. And I want to get into all of those reasons and see, like I mentioned, if they jibe with your conflict as well. Okay. You kind of got crazy eyes right now. Do I? Oops. I had a little bit of salt. Do you think that was why? Probably. Okay. First bone of contention. Yes. No, I don't know. I'm just... Oh, Oh, okay. I was giving you an an introduction. No, it's, it's not really a contentious thing. I just surprised myself with how I felt about it and things that I rediscovered... Okay. ...in this viewing of it. I think the biggest revelation for me is that all of these Frank Capra films that I've been watching for years and years and years, and this feeling of Americanism, for lack of a better term, that I associate with Frank Capra is actually, I find, more suited to the work of Robert Riskin, who was the screenwriter on this and on a number of other Frank Capra films. Now, when you say this particularly American group of films that he made... Did Riskin also write Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and Mr. Deeds Goes to Town? He wrote Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, and he did the adaptation for You Can't Take It With You. Oh, okay. But not Mr. Smith. Correct. Sidney Buchanan wrote that one. Okay. But in researching a little bit more about the film, Frank Capra was actually a conservative. Mm -hmm. Robert Riskin was the liberal. And so when I think about these films that embody qualities of the New Deal specifically, Mm -hmm. that's not a Frank Capra thing. That wasn't the actors involved either. That really came from Robert Riskin. Hmm, Interesting. So you feel like Capra's role in this was... It's confusing to me. I haven't done enough research yet to really nail that down, but I think it makes me want to learn more. It makes up that first conflict of this person that I thought I knew, and I kind of associated that Capricorn, we've all heard that term, Mm. with him. And 
this way of what an idealized America was like or was not like. Who was he really? Why did he want to be involved with these stories, except that they are fantastic stories and incredibly well written? Was that enough? Mm -hmm. Maybe it was. For him to go in a completely different ideological direction than seemed to be what he espoused otherwise. Well, the tension I think that this causes is what made this viewing of this film for me, which I think I've seen it probably three or four times now, the most interesting one so far. It complicates it a lot, I realize. In retrospect, I probably thought this was a much more simple and straightforward film than it is. I'm with you, and I think that's why it first occurred to me, too. And I found myself really having to think a lot harder about something that I remembered as being a little bit more breezy than it turned out to be. I'm in complete agreement with you. So that's an element of conflict that there's no negative side to that mm -hmm. conflict. It's just interesting to me. It makes it more fascinating to me, I think, like you were saying. I'm going to touch upon more of these conflicts as we go on as well and definitely jump in if something occurred to you. Okay. I do want to say before we get right into the film. This represented the climax of an unofficial trilogy of this American individualism, this Americanism as created by Capra, as seen by Capra, with, as we mentioned, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, which was in 1936, and then Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in 1939. So let's get right into it. We have the opening of the film, which is almost a montage of what I consider to be the workers. Mm -hmm. We've got the factories, the farms, the urban areas, the suburban areas. We have the medley of old songs like Oh Susanna, Home on the Range. So he's not being subtle at all right off the bat. You have what I'm guessing when you put those two things together and the feeling that it's supposed to evoke a very pro-labor stance. The anonymous worker... The anonymous little man. Yes, and that nothing could be more America based on these songs than these images, right. I think. Salt of the earth, backbone of the country. One part that's interesting to me in this montage, we have a look at the farm. To me, it was representative of the CCC as well. The rows of young men doing this work. You and I are huge fans of the CCC, but explain yes. that a little bit what the Civilian Conservation Corps is for someone who is not as well-versed in that. I'm going to turn it to you because I think you're the resident expert on that. I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but a quick thumbnail of it is that it was a public works program that was part of the New Deal that ran from the mid-30s to the early 40s. It shut down after the draft and the beginning of World War II sort of made it obsolete. You didn't need the jobs anymore that it provided, but... It contributed to the upkeep of everything from state parks to national parks to fire roads. It gave a lot of young men a lot of jobs, including a special part of it that was devoted especially to Native American resources. And it's stuff that we still take advantage of even today. You and I, when we go on our regular camping trips, just last year, we went to a lodge and state park that was built largely through the efforts of the CCC. It's still there. It's still a beautiful building, beautiful grounds. And those things are probably the way that it shows up in contemporary life the most. If you're a very outdoorsy type person, a lot of the state parks you're going to go to, you will find evidence of the CCC 
the work they did back in the 30s and 40s, building cabins, building roads, all sorts of things. It may not have been something you paid attention to before, but now that you know about it, you'll probably see it pop up in the periphery here and there. And a couple of points I want to underscore to make it important in this context is that it was for young, unmarried men. Mm -hmm. So again, when you mentioned the draft would come later, the draft would take all of those men. One of my great uncles was in the CCC. Mm -hmm. He left the farm. There were 13 of them, so no jobs around so that he could go have three square meals a day. He basically. left Virginia? This was West Virginia. And went that he to... Left. I don't know where he was sent, and he's unfortunately passed away now, so I can't ask him, and all of his brothers are gone too. Because so I would love to hear that story. I would too. And the second part of that, we're talking about the time frame. This is a film very much on the cusp. This was released in early 1941, before Pearl Harbor, before we entered the war. Mm-hmm. It's firmly entrenched in the period of the Great Depression. So that gives context when you see young and old homeless men roaming through the country. That was not an odd thing to see. What would have then been referred to as forgotten men. And there's a lot of talk about relief through this film as well. And so that's what the CCC in part was created for, to give jobs to get people off of relief. Mm. So turning away from context... Back into the film. We talked about this montage that's happening. It goes right into babies in a hospital. The new generation. (laughs) A new hope. That transforms into this newspaper building. The old is being replaced with the new. In this film, it's the new bulletin. That's the newspaper. And in another touch of characteristic, unsubtle Capra symbolism, the words free press are being jackhammered off of the old sign with its typeface and its serifs and is replaced with this new almost space age design a very sleek sign that mentions nothing about a free press and we learned that literally the new bosses are cleaning out the dead wood everybody's getting fired in a kind of slash and burn a completely impersonal way They've got a, a kid, whistle and a gesture, a slashing throat motion. Get <laughs> out of here. No, you don't even deserve a word at this point. It was completely dehumanizing to the nth degree. They were really, again, exaggerating all of these things or maybe not exaggerating these things, I guess. Never having been through that at that time, I would hope more humanity would creep into the process, but maybe not. I think it really hits home later when we see how it's affected a a specific group of townspeople and how the old are affected. We have a sense now of what social security really means. And of course that started during that period, but you could kick a 70 year old man out of a job with no consequences. And I don't know what he possibly could have gone to have done at that point. But anyway, selling apples. Yeah. Riding the rails. Walter Brennan did. Okay. He did. (laughs) And the man at the top of this specific heap right here is James Gleason, one of my all-time favorites. Every great character actor that existed in the 40s is hanging around in the periphery of this movie, basically. You've got the entire stable of the Capra greats. You'll see them peppered throughout this film. Lots of people that you'll see then again later in It's a Wonderful Life to Great Impact and then a million other things. But the person that we're going to follow right now being affected is Barbara Stanwyck. She has just gotten fired, even though she says she can't afford to be out of work right now. But 
The new guard wants everything streamlined. They want to get rid of the lavender and old lace, as James Gleason characterizes her column. She makes a pretty impassioned plea, in fact, offering to take significantly less money. She will do anything to keep this job. It's desperate times. And that last little screw you is, hey, don't forget to file your last column on your way out. This creates the impetus for the setup. She's going to give them fireworks if that's what they want. She starts furiously typing away, and what comes out of that is a creation. She, as the colonist, claims that she received this letter, saying that the person who has written it is going to jump off of the roof of City Hall on Christmas Eve as a protest. A protest against slimy politics that have resulted in unemployment, a commentary on what she says, as we laughingly call the civilized world, and that sets everything in motion. This may be the first conflict I have. Yes. <laughs> the press, whom you are supposed to be able to trust, is resorting to running a fake suicide letter on the front page of the newspaper, essentially, to which another one of the old codgers who has gotten the boot, what he refers to as the old fakeroo. Yeah, I think journalistic integrity was slightly less in that period. <laughs> we may have... Again, an idealized version of that, which is one of the things that the movie forces you to look squarely at and deal with. The history of the press and yellow journalism and the Hearst empire and all of those things on into the scandals in the press today. Plagiarism and blatantly fake news stories, etc. and so on. This continuum probably isn't much different than it ever has been. Sensationalism sells papers, clearly. Always has, always will. And so... This is a good exercise to remind me to stop and look at this thing on a historical spectrum rather than just at one point in time, at my point in time, because so many of the things about this that are both good and bad, the situations that this film portrays, have always been that way. She has created the guise of John Doe in order to express this. So she's even setting up another layer of the old fakeroo. She's not saying... She's going to do it. She makes up someone else who's going to do it. Now, immediately, the wheels start turning all across the area because another party reads it as a direct attack on the current governor of that state. It sets off calls to all sorts of other politicians. The regular people reading the paper are up in arms. There are people demanding that John Doe be found and given a job. So the reaction happens right away. And everyone has an agenda. It reminds me that media is owned by corporations. It reminds me that in a lot of cases, a man's life is literally only worth as much as it can be leveraged for re-election, for circulation rates, or for a bonus in your pay packet. Now remember, at this point, Anne is still fired. This was her last column, so she's gone. However, such an uproar has been created that the paper starts looking for her because... They can smell a good story when they see one, and someone, at some point, we don't know who yet, already understands the larger implications of this. Someone does, but it doesn't seem like the newspaper people do, actually, right no, off the bat. She's doesn't. the only one that understands the power of her story, initially. She has to make a very convincing pitch, repeatedly, before Gleason gets the message. Because they're going to milk it for a certain period of time, according to the newspaper folks, but not 
this kind of large national platform in order to make anything else happen. It's just, okay, let's find John Doe. Let's give him a job. It'll be good press. And that will be the end of it. Let's just bury it, basically. And as you mentioned, Anne is the one for her own angle in order to maintain a job, which is quite understandable in an income, is that no, let's make a whole big thing out of it. Let's do a daily story about how he came to be here, about all the John Doe's in the world, and use it as a platform to protest against the evils in the world. Now, when you say it's quite understandable, do you the, mean that the in money. the abstract, or do you mean that, say, if you were in that position, do you go this far? I think that that's a really interesting question and another conflict I wanted to talk about, which we'll see a little bit more of later, but there's no reason why we can't mention it right now. In the context of a depression, are all moral bets off? Are some on the table, but some not? Is there a spectrum of a moral reality? Because as we learn later, she is the sole support for her family. So it's that Winston Churchill thing of... We're all whores. We're just negotiating the price. Quite possibly. Okay. So I even before we learn that she's the sole support, I get trying to do everything you can in order to maintain possibly the only job you have available to you at even, the moment. Even pushing a Christmas Eve suicide. I, I'm just saying I get it. I'm not saying I would do <laughs> okay. it. Or maybe I would. I don't know. Right. I don't know. We've never found ourselves in that situation. I think it's a fascinating idea. And and again, when we talk about specific context, I think that that is incredibly important. If you did this right now, would she seem like a monster? Would it just be a Jason Blair situation or what? But it was the depression. That's no joke. So anyway, she has this idea. Let's really follow this thing through, which is for a job. But I do sincerely believe that she wants to talk about what is wrong in the world right now. As a secondary concern. As a secondary. You know, also as a secondary concern is the fact that she is a woman in this position because she is consistently told, first by James Gleason, do me a favor, get married and have babies. Get out of here. Later on, she is serving a meal to John Doe when anyone else could have done this. So what does it say about what her role actually is? What kind of power she actually has, which is not much. No, especially being the driving force behind it. To be the mastermind. The mastermind of this campaign. Subservient to practically everyone. Definitely. Well right now it works. She okay. gets her job back. She gets a bonus and they need to find someone to be John Doe. Well they find a pretty good one. They do. This audition process starts, and we see this parade of really down-and-out characters. Oh, also, we should mention, not because they've gone out in search of him, but because hundreds of men have shown up claiming to be the person that wrote this fake letter. And the first person, at least in this series, who says, no, I'm not John Doe, I just heard that there might be some jobs available. So he's there on potentially a less mercenary level than everyone else. He just simply wants a job. It's Gary Cooper. He walks in and her ears go up. If I walked in... I'm <laughs> <laughs> uh, waiting. Right. Go for it, okay. If I walked into your place of business and you were trying to cast this role, as it were, and my clothes were a little threadbare... But uh, these eyes and this face and this beard was looking out from under that fedora. 
Are you kicking me out of bed? For... Uh, fedora, you just sold it. Okay, thank okay, you. done. All right, okay, okay. Yeah, I think charisma and magnetism and all of the other virtues that he has, the honesty, the straightforwardness, the aw shucks thing, any of those things put together, overrides a stretch of bad luck. Conflict number two or three or ten, wherever, whatever point we're at. I don't consider aw shucks to be a virtue. Okay. That's the problem that I've always had with Gary Cooper, whom I'm not particularly a fan of. Because the inability to speak or verbalize, to me, is not a great quality. Okay. To me, it seems that there's nothing inside to come out. So I found him to be more of a bland mask than a character I want to really dive into. So it doesn't register as homespun, humility, listen rather than talk. It doesn't come across that way. It's more hollow when you watch the great majority of what he does. It is. Because in this, I think this is vastly different. I agree with you, but for kind of a different reason. Okay. You just spelled out these virtues that he's projecting. But the more we get into this, we know nothing about him except that he once played baseball Mm -hmm. and would like to again. Sure. That's it. That's it. Which is a great play on their part, I think, to make him relatable to the audience at the time. To make him someone who once had and no longer has. Rather than just make him a generic hobo who had nothing to begin with. He has fallen from an elevated position, down and out, down in his luck. And I think that was a much more relatable spot than someone who never had anything. It's also quite relatable and puts him on a bit of a pedestal because his downfall came from an injury, not from any sort of personal choice. Like, he's not an alcoholic. Mm. He wasn't a womanizer. He didn't cheat. Through no fault of his own. No fault of his own. And I don't think any of these issues are problems. It. I'm with you on, it's made it so much more interesting when I look at how morally ambiguous he is allowed to Mm. be. Everyone projects onto him. He projects nothing back out. He's going along to get along, really. Sure. He's got a believable face. That's why they choose him. And by the way, his real name in this is John Willoughby. But just as in the playlet that we did at the beginning, it's yes or yeah, maybe. It's one way, it's the other way. It just sort of depends on what the actual deal is. Yeah. What puts food on the table, how much food, how far I have to go to get it. He gets hired. And this is the part where she's now serving he and his buddy, Walter Brennan, who plays the colonel, coffee and food in this, which was so striking to me. Again, she's still the mastermind. She's still the one ostensibly in charge of this little scheme, and she's giving them food. They could have brought anybody else in to do that, but she's still firmly put in her place to me, either overtly or covertly. Walter Brennan as the colonel, as his sidekick. We start to learn more about him. We know a lot more about the colonel than we do about John Willoughby, I think. He talks about this plan is pretty screwy. We're going to learn a lot more about his view of life later on throughout the film. The great majority of it is also one I would say. I related to this character a lot more than you did, I think. I, I I can see that. Especially the notion that... The world is lovable when it leaves you alone. Good point. And no one is trying to sell you something. So here's the sales pitch for him. 
He's got a contract with this paper for every day up until Christmas, and then he's going to be given a train ticket out of town, disappear back to wherever it is you came from. This is where we first learn about the owner of the paper, who is D.B. Norton. He is completely on board with this plan. We don't yet totally know what his angle is, but he says that he wants to build a bonfire under every important man in the state. So he's all, he's all on board with this call to action. Now they get John and the Colonel set up in a hotel room. The Colonel really kicks it into high gear with his worldview at this point. It's all about the helots, as he calls them, because people are a lot of heels. Right. The world's been shaved by a drunken barber. Yeah, I wrote that one down too. <laughs> Basically, at this point, if you give in to any of these amenities, it's all downhill. You've lost yourself. Right. Really. Even room service. As basic as that is, just ordering a sandwich, that is corruption Yes. at this point. John doesn't agree or disagree. He's just listening to this. He gives his $50 that the paper has given him to the colonel to go do whatever. Give it away. Do whatever you want with it. I just want a baseball glove. Conflict again for me because I love Walter Brennan. I really enjoy Sergeant York, even though I just talked about I'm not a big Gary Cooper fan. Mm -hmm. I love his part in that. What do you feel is his motivation for this deeply cynical view of the world? Most likely earned from what he talks about. Mm -hmm. He's an older man to John's younger man. Why do they stay together? To me, it plays almost like a son he never had or lost, maybe. Brennan would have been the age of soldiers that went to World War I. So some of the bitterness may come from that. That part of the backstory is never completely spelled out. I definitely get much more of a father-son feeling from it than anything else. To me, it gets a lot more complicated as it goes on, and we learn more about how deeply dissatisfied he is with this whole idea and with Anne, and it comes off as jealousy to me almost at certain points. But Jealousy or yeah. is it righteous indignation? Because he is the only one that sticks to anything even close to a rigid moral stance. That said, he still takes money, but for the most part, he turns his back on all of this. Yet to me, he's still a hanger on for so much of this, I think. It doesn't feel that way to me. It feels okay. like he is sticking around to protect him. It's not any sort of sycophantic thing. It's not, I can't get by without him. It is a 50-50 relationship, it feels like to me, and he is there to look out for the kid. I felt like it was more like he was protecting his own meal ticket. Mm, it didn't I guess. feel that way to me. Okay. Conflict. That's okay. <laughs> the conflict I had, or not conflict, I guess as much as just a question that it raised right here was, who is this an indictment of? Is this film going after the gullible public, greedy politicians, ruthless tycoons, selfish journalists? We all deserve it. When you look at the thing, no one should get a pass because we are all complicit, at least, at some level in this thing. To me, by and large, if we look at it within the worldview of the American individual that he's promoting, it's institutions that really take the hit. Institutions and large groups of people. Any group of people can turn into a mob mm -hmm. with its own mentality. And so... 
anyone that's indulging in that groupthink is going to be a target. The groupthink as a target thing sets up another conflict quite nicely because we are heading into the stretch where the public's response to the John Doe phenomenon is to gather together, is to start John Doe groups, is to, for better or for worse, become not the individual that Capra or Riskin so values, but to become a mass. People are organizing, and Anne has really set off this movement with this series of I protest columns about all sorts of things. And we know that it's generating marches and protests at the local level. And the higher-ups are threatened by it, encouraged by it, depending on who they are. Depending on what it will yield for them. Yes. To figure out how they can exploit it to their best advantage. And this, not coincidentally, is where we meet D.B. Norton, the owner of the paper. We see him in his natural setting, which is surveying his private motor core. At this point, we don't yet know what all of that means. We just know that he's a rich and powerful guy. Anne and Connell, that's James Gleason's character, are at his house. And Anne is very much in favor of shaking up national politics. Gleason still wants to drop it because this John Willoughby as John Doe is a wild card. Edward Arnold as DB is very soft-spoken in this, and to me that came off as quite menacing. Part of that is because I know the other characters that he's traditionally played. He was the heavy and You Can't Take It With You before Mm -hmm. this. But the character that he plays in You Can't Take It With You goes through a redemption. Well, let's wait and see if he has a redemption or not. Or what his actual angle is. We don't quite know yet. I think the but that I used there to introduce that idea gives it away a little bit. Okay. Anyway, for right now, he is all in favor of putting this John Doe over. So so he has struck a deal with Anne that she's going to write a radio speech for John Doe for 100 bucks a week. And she's going to work directly with him. What do you think of Barbara Stanwyck's casting in this? Okay, full disclosure again. I feel like I'm constantly slagging off people unless I'm saying how nice their butts are. But <laughs> I am also not the world's biggest Barbara Stanwyck fan. I don't have any problem with her. I think she's amazing. I've loved practically all of her movies. I only quibble with a couple of her roles. I don't have any issue with her as an actress. She's just not typically my favorite. And in this... I had a bigger memory of her, I guess. And now, when I watch this again, she is actually kind of a small part. And she doesn't make a huge impression to me. Why do you ask? I ask because I love Barbara Stanwyck. I am a huge fan of everything from Babyface to Double Indemnity to The Furies, on and on and on. But the thing I love about those performances is she's tough and she's smart And in something like this, that calls upon her to be vulnerable, it's not an attractive quality. And I don't mean that in a physically, I want to fall in love with this character sort of way. And you know this about me. I'm not a big fan of need, neediness in general. And vulnerability of that sort is not something that I value in a person, either real or fictional. And especially when it's so contrary to what I think their true nature is. If this was Gene Arthur, it would be totally fine. I have no problem with that. It would be perfect, actually, if she were to be that person. Because I feel like she is that person. 
I don't want to rail against actors playing against type because it's often very successful and interesting and it provides a conflict and a tension that might not be there otherwise. But playing against type, I feel, is completely different than playing against your true nature, which I feel is what this is. I would have voted for them to either have beefed up the role and made it more interesting, Mm -hmm. just in general, regardless of who was playing it, or recast it. What I did think was interesting, again, this talking about conflicts and doing a little bit more research, we established in the last week that I apparently am the last one to figure out that people are possibly gay. (laughs) Speaking of George Michael. Okay. When it's obvious to everyone else. I didn't know that there's a whole school of gossip and thought that Barbara Stanwyckel was possibly a lesbian. Hmm. What I think really puts that over is she easily sells the idea that she doesn't need anyone, least of all a man, to complete her schemes or come out on top and all of these other amazing roles that she's played. And in this, she is so subservient so often, it doesn't read to me. Hmm. She's kind of a nothing. Again, even though she is ostensibly the mastermind and she's the one that's writing all of these pieces. Funny that you bring that up when I think about the very specific examples I gave of Babyface and Double Indemnity and the Furies and how a lot of that could have been easily coded as lesbian, but to me, didn't necessarily play that way. I am a straight male, and so therefore it might not occur to me. But it's also because I see her as a sort of above that. It's a little hard to describe. Not necessarily outside of it, not sexless, because she's very accomplished in the methods of it and the use of it for however she wants to use it to promote her agenda in those movies. Is it what I was saying that she doesn't need anyone? Right. Yeah. I don't think it has to do with sexual preference. I think it has to do with being a step in evolution rather than just I choose one over the other. She doesn't come off as that same force of nature Mm -hmm. that she does in so many other films. I guess that probably is close to what I was saying. I perceive a weakness, not just a vulnerability, which the example I give of Gene Arthur would be a, a virtue, a positive. But yeah, I perceive it more as weakness, a lack of vision, a lack of strength. But here I am about to contradict what I just said again in this movie filled with conflict and contradiction. When we see her in the next scene with her mother, when she is preparing to write this speech for John Doe to give, in which she plunders her father's diary. It's very clear that her parents, her mother and father, are truly charitable souls. They are performing that, living it, behaving that way. And she is the new generation. She is the faster, sleeker model who is willing to take that thing that her father thoroughly believed in, both preached and practiced, and use that as a prop. So maybe she's not as soft and vulnerable and weak as I thought if she is able to take something that means so much to her, as she claims, and use it for these ends. The idea is that she's trying to find something real, even to use in this artificial method of this radio speech. She's trying to find something real with hope in it. Which is difficult because a lot of people say a lot of things and, as her mother points out, a lot of people have stopped paying attention because you hear the same thing over and over again. And this is when it really turns again for me. She is the person, through these speeches, who is creating 
her own lover. Hmm. Out of her father first, Mm -hmm. and then herself, as she is interpreting these words. John has nothing to say on his own. And yet, it starts to become more clear that they're falling in love because they tell us so. Mm-hmm. Not like necessarily from their actions, but... Everyone is projecting onto him whatever they want. And in her case, he is the avatar for this perfect romantic partner. Which is skeezy because that's her dad. <laughs> but anyway. Oh, it gets worse. It for sure gets worse. <laughs> Hold hold that thought for a couple of minutes. First, we have an infiltrator. There is another person, because of their own angle, who is offering John Doe money to read an entirely different speech with a different angle. He's going to give him $5,000 from this rival newspaper, The Chronicle. The speech is all written out for you. All you have to do is read it. We'll have a car waiting for you. You can leave right afterwards. And now it's the day of the big broadcast. It's going to be live, so the stakes are pretty high for this. This is when she first says, I've fallen in love with John Doe. Again, who she has created. Well, the very phrase itself, I've fallen in love with an anonymous everyman. I've fallen in love with a cipher. Could be anybody. No identity of their own. And as frequently applied in our culture these days, a dead person. Definitely. A corpse. Yeah. So through all of this manufacturing that's happening, they're creating a literal circus atmosphere as well around this broadcast. They bring in literal little people to represent this little man that we've all been discussing. It's a pretty big deal. The colonel is still trying to get John to leave through this. Let's just chuck it all and get out of here. And then we have the big speech. And they do this in its entirety. This is a very dialogue-heavy film Mm -hmm. their entire speeches and monologues the one thing i liked best about it though was an actual non-verbal moment when he steadies himself on the microphone stand that was my favorite part of this whole sequence he begins to stumble his way through Anne's speech he has decided at the last minute he's not going to do the chronicle speech why did he decide that couldn't even tell you you don't think he's starting to feel what she feels in his way I feel like I want to say yes, and it still feels like it's the path of least resistance to me. It's the person who got there first. She even appeals to him with the baseball terminology. And I do think he wants to do it with her. Okay. I think that's a big part of it. He was eyeing that statue in his hotel room of the naked cherub pretty (laughs) closely. I think it could have gone either way, not in the context of the movie. But I think he could have decided, I'm just going to take the other one. Because he read it through, so, so it had if, to have something. If the Chronicle speech had been delivered by some blousy dame, some lure of sex appeal rather than just, here's cash. Or, if I were in charge of the Chronicle, it would have been a little old lady. Mm. Done. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> but we get, we get through the speech. Anne clearly believes it to me. Mm-hmm. And I think in the process of reading the speech and actually hearing it inside of his head and seeing how it's affecting other people, I do think at that point he begins to believe it. Mm-hmm. I don't think he did right before that moment. I think he certainly does at the end. I think he likes what it says. Mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right in that. This is the origin of that. This is him just beginning to get an inkling of what he means to people. That does not come into fruition, though, 
Until he first runs away. Yes. He and the colonel get out of town right as he finishes the speech. They go to the small town cafe. He sees at that moment a truck drive by with the sign for join the John Doe Club. As we mentioned earlier, people have started to organize Mm -hmm. as these columns have gone out. And he sees this is a real live living thing that's now happening. A glorious movement, as someone will say. This is when we start to understand the stakes of this glorious movement for the rest of the country and for the little guy like us. At this local city hall where he's been taken, D.B. arrives with Anne and they offer him a lecture tour, which he initially refuses. And then we learn that my favorite, 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 (laughs) Regis Toomey, has shown up to save the day as he always does. In his soda jerk outfit, no less. By the way, I believe this was something like a 14-page monologue he memorized beforehand. That's what he did as his audition. They did it in one take. He nailed it. It's such a it's good amazing. monologue. Regis Toomey, one of the reasons that I love Regis Toomey, it all started with Guys and Dolls. Mm-hmm. At that point, he was in his 50s. He's an older man. He's the avuncular, every genuine smile you've ever seen on any person you've ever liked. See, I love him for the opposite reason. I love him as the crusty detective that's always there to rough up the guy if if that's how it has to go. I do agree with you. He's also great in His Girl Friday as a journalist, Mm -hmm. but in this, what, uh, sorry to go back to that story for a second, what I responded to in Guys and Dolls is his smile is the most natural thing in the world, mm-hmm. and that's what he employs in this film. He right. is totally believable. When he's delivering this monologue in that outfit with that array of people behind him, he is a goddamn Norman Rockwell painting come to life. For sure. Did it ever exist, do you think? I don't know. That's maybe the most interesting conflict in the whole thing for me is set up in this sequence and culminates with this speech. When John Doe runs away, and it's clear that freedom, and this is what the colonel has been trying to tell him all along, is when you are beholden to no one. Yes. But then, Toomey delivers this speech, and you realize, for this grand democratic experiment to work, we have to be beholden to our neighbors, to the people that we come in contact with every day. We have an obligation, if we want society to continue, to engage a certain way, and for us to prosper and be fulfilled to be even more giving and not closed off and not isolated and separate and completely on your own. So which one of those things is Capra selling and which one of those things is Riskin selling? I don't know. I don't know. I assume Riskin is selling the what this boils down to be good to your neighbor. Mm -hmm. I assume. Yeah. I believed it was Capra before, but in reading through these things, I, I think it was Riskin. Yeah, it's interesting. And it is very difficult to parse out moment to moment. My feelings were going back and forth constantly throughout this thing, thinking about, I have this very specific image of America that I respond to. It's a very Carl Sandbergian, city of the broad shoulders kind of America that is very definitely based in individualism. One of my favorite quotes of all time, and a thing that I definitely try to live by, look at nature, work independently, and solve your own problems. Winslow Homer. But where does that fit into this? How do I respond to Regis Toomey's monologue about we didn't know our neighbor 
We didn't know how surrounded by fantastic people we were that want to throw in together and do good work together. How do I respond to that if that is one of the things I truly believe? And Bert has his own conflict later, which I think shows how often we are living on this razor's edge of wanting to do good and then distrusting people implicitly. Right. It's tough. It is extremely tough for me, at least, because I feel like any group that's bigger than maybe 10 or 12 people, I almost immediately lose any faith in. Much less trying to organize a grassroots campaign of hundreds or thousands you just cannot maintain focus, and everything becomes so diluted and compromised. It is a real struggle for me when I'm watching this. And there's that whole finale of Rope, the Alfred Hitchcock film, where Jimmy Stewart tells them this terrible thing you did. At least you made me stand up and look at the things I said. At least you are testing the courage of my convictions with this horrible thing that has happened. If nothing else, I thank you for that. That's what this movie did to me over and over and over again. That brings to mind one of my favorite characters in this, which is Sourpuss. <laughs> the neighbor whom they thought was the town, Sourpuss, as his name indicates, they find that he was just a man who was hard of hearing and therefore was becoming more isolated. And again, I want to bring in context. As we learn a little bit later, this was a time when people were having to isolate themselves because they couldn't necessarily reveal to others that they had literally nothing left, no stitch of furniture, no clothing, no food. It becomes very difficult when your circumstances change so drastically to ask for help. And then what do you do when it's being offered to you freely by people who, in another circumstance, could be your enemy because they're in competition for food, money, jobs? But this says, let's start simply at our neighbor level and do something for ourselves. They're not trying to impact the world. They're simply starting locally with an idea that some might feel is Christian or can go past all of those boundaries into that's just be good to your neighbor. And here's how we do it. And they found that it made everyone, including themselves, so happy that they wanted to keep going and more people wanted to be involved. I don't know. I'm still not sold. <laughs> it's hard enough to coordinate what you and I are doing in our lives. And I love you. Well, you it... know that I've been dedicated to philanthropy almost my entire life. Mm -hmm. It started when I was very young through my grandparents. And even with that, I follow the tenant of some funny tweet that somebody did about house hunters, which is, I don't want to hear any noise of the city. And if my neighbors look at me, I'll kill myself. <laughs> I I want I want to give of myself and yet I want everyone to leave me alone at the same time. Mm. So I guess I'm really sourpuss in this neighborhood probably. Okay. What we learn and what John is learning is that people are taking a sense of pride in this help that they're doing and helping find jobs for each other. People are going off of relief, mm -hmm. which we learn has other implications. And strictly, no politicians are allowed to join the club. So you keep politics out of it. Bird is trying to get John to see what he, not knowing it's not him, has started. And really why he shouldn't jump, which is the whole impetus for this entire thing. Don't commit suicide, as you have promised to do, because it's useful for you to be walking around. You're the face of this. So this feeling that he was getting during the speech 
it really is coming to life in front of him. He is really beginning to get a true idea of how much he, as an avatar, he knows that, but no one else does, how much he means to people. Yes. Meanwhile, the colonel is still not having any of this and wants him to leave again. Let's go up to the Columbia River country, which I can't blame him. Yeah. Now we get to understand a bit more about what are the actual stakes for DB. He's been behind the scenes orchestrating this entire thing. And we learn that he is making sure that the clubs are set up correctly. This is important. It started with about eight clubs. Now it's hundreds. It's gone from this what looked to be kind of a Midwest Mm -hmm. central thing to spreading across the country. He still won't be nailed down in terms of one political party or another. And he's preparing this big John Doe convention. So this is going to be a very big deal. Connell point blank asks him, what's your angle in all of this? And DB says, it's a worthy cause, basically, and stay out of it. Now we change focus from the clubs and the receipts and the contracts to Anne again, talking about John. She's packing, and John comes in at this point. And this is the straight-up weirdest part (laughs) of this or any film, really. I like to think that this is exactly the part that you chose this for. I had forgotten all about this. So I sat there uh, with my eyes getting wider and wider and typing and typing and typing. And do you see my highlighted exclamation points? I see that. Yeah. But I find it hard to believe. I think you're just feigning innocence because surely the big spanking dream sequence cannot have been far from your memory. Do you want to tell us what the actual dream was? Do you want to give the synopsis of this dream? I can't even begin to give the synopsis of the dream. In the dream, he's her father. He's a judge that's marrying her. He is spanking her. Yeah. Administering discipline. And apparently, all of these things are completely endearing. Yeah, she gets really doe-eyed a lot. (laughs) I like to think... That maybe she had partial hearing loss and she could only hear spank. <laughs> and so, hey, you am all up. for that. Sure, of course. Why not? Moving on. <laughs> you sure or do you have more to say about that? Yell. Now, I've already gone on about creating her own lover and she has no message except the one that she's making up. And, oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. Well, then, yeah. We Weird can... sexual jealousy I'll bring up again with the Colonel and okay. John, but I'll leave it at that. Okay. Next. There's a little bit that comes here when Anne's talking about why this movement seems to be making a difference. What makes people listen to this message and not some other? What gets them inspired to go make their own club? And she and her mother are talking about these platitudes that we've heard a million times, but sometimes when a person is really hungry for something, it's the right time to hear these words again that maybe they're finally understanding what those words mean, which clearly John is the person that we see that happening with. Mm -hmm. That part of it where John confesses to Anne that he is just beginning to grasp it is the pivotal moment of the film for me. The reason that we say these things over and over again is because somewhere out there, someone is just beginning to wake up to this idea, this idea of service and community And the fact that we cannot live in isolation if we want to survive and thrive. That we can't just be devoted to self-interest. 
And so all of these things, these questions that I have, and these things that are deeply conflicting, when Norton wants to start this third party revolution, the John Doe party, no one asks. The thing that immediately struck me is, how can one political party claim to have the interest of every single John Doe at heart? If indeed there are hundreds of thousands of them, perhaps millions of us, the little man, the anonymous worker, the laborer, the farmer, how can one political party claim to have the best interests of all of those individuals at heart, as they are a vast, varied, and complex group of people? He's created an essentially, to me, a cabal. I mean, it's, and it's so insidious the way that he's done it, and it's fascinating. He's done a brilliant job of it. He's created the perfect avatar, and he's going to have that avatar endorse him. He's taken the time and built it city by city in order to make it resonate, in order to make it palatable, in order to say, all of this stuff that you believed, oh, I'm there too, now let's go in this direction. Right. But the thing about what I was saying is, I don't trust it. Personally, me, Cole, I do not trust it. That thing I was saying about a group of 20 people or more, I have no faith in. I'm amazed that anything ever gets done. And I'm completely conflicted by the idea of that many people showing up at a convention, for instance, to support a noble idea, yes, but that many people who are simply followers. Happens all the time. That many people who put stock in an avatar. But the thing is, the pivotal moment of the film for me, and the reason that I keep coming back to it, and that I keep going out and trying every day, and that I think you do too, and that so many people do, is this idea that somewhere out there, someone today is waking up to this idea. So we have to keep saying it. We have to keep working. We have to keep trying. We can't give in. That faith in human nature, regardless of how suspect I find people's motivations and their selfishness and all of that, for centuries, as long as there have been humans, we've managed to, to not completely eradicate ourselves. There is an ebb and flow. Sometimes we're closer to that than others. But the argument that the dark has one more spear has never quite won out because we are still here and we are still trying and working all the time. And that scene where he's sitting there with her telling her this, that's what swings the needle back to me to the positive side. That sentiment and really believing in it. That's what keeps me from completely cutting myself off and giving in to my selfishness a lot of the time. I'm not perfect and I don't manage to avoid it all the time. But that very idea is the thing that keeps me trying. The thing that keeps me trying is the pivotal moment for me when DB is revealing his true motives to Anne. Because I have always believed in the J.R. Ewings and the Darth Vader's <laughs> of the world. I think that there are truly people who are pulling these strings. And I don't mean some, you know, pentaveret or whatever, the Illuminati. <laughs> but that there are truly people who have very evil motives. Right, and far more power and resources. Absolutely. And he is one of them. So now we really know what he is intending to do. He's going to get at this convention, all of these people en route to this convention, most simply to present petitions for John Doe not to jump. It's really kind of that simple right now. He's going to use it as a platform to announce his candidacy for this third party, this John Doe party, endorsed by John Doe. 
And here's when it really shifts. This is kind of the toboggan ride to the end Mm -hmm. at this point. John, meanwhile, has gone to Anne's house, intending to propose to her. And he says at this moment, I think she's in love with another man, the one she made up. Uh, Yeah? Yeah. You you are correct, sir. (laughs) And I wondered at this point, what if he had truly considered committing suicide? What if he had actually taken on this role truly and decided to go all the way with it? As a martyr to achieve what? To be the person who truly follows through on their ideals, who really makes a statement that this is all wrong and this is why I'm doing it, and that these platitudes actually mean something. But he does end up there. He does. I was thinking about it at this moment. Okay. Because he hasn't gone all the way. Right. He's believing these things, but... So he's gone from this very gray area, morally ambiguous, completely uncommitted, to now almost wholeheartedly believing in it, but not to the point that he will sacrifice himself for the greater good. Right. That there are still more earthly things to do, I guess. One being follow your pleasure and get married. Now, he catches up with Connell in this bar. Connell's getting drunk. This is when the reveal happens to John. Connell tells him this is what is really going on. I love this moment and the story that he tells about being in World War I in the same outfit with his father. They both joined up at the same time and talking about how that affected him. And he can't take it anymore. That's why he has to tell John that he's part of, unwittingly, this cabal this fifth column, and that Anne is a part of it. Back at DB's house, he's having one of these political meetings, these back room, cigar. room, yeah. Yeah, with these other political bosses whom he's going to grant favors to in exchange for support. John arrives to say he's going to have no part of it over his dead body. Now, DB's got the blackmail for him. He's going to reveal that he has been a fraud this entire time, that you're a fake, no one will believe you. I will simply take over this plan and use it for my own purposes. Anne is trying to explain the entire time that she has had no part of this specific section of it. Now we're at the convention. And this is when DB's private army basically comes into play and through all of these dirty tricks, they're able to suppress John from speaking and wildly disseminate the information that he is a fake. Conspicuously jackbooted thugs, this private army yeah. is. This security force of his. Bert and his local John Doe club have arrived. And this is what I was mentioning, that kind of razor's edge. Because when it is revealed, at least even the possibility that John is a fake, Bert is ready to let everything go at that point. Sourpuss is the one that keeps him on track. Sourpuss and Bert's wife. Another instance of a woman having a message to give, but it all goes through her husband. Anyway, he is driven off the stage and driven out of the convention, and we don't see him again. We come to Christmas Eve. DB, who feels like the Mr. Potter of this specific movie, is kind of pacing around his Christmas tree as carolers are outside and he's scowling. Anne has driven herself hysterical to the point of illness because she can't find John. She hasn't been able to explain. And she knows that he's going to go through with this suicide plan. She just knows in her heart that is where he is headed. And that's what others are feeling as well. So they've been manning the city hall area in case he does show up. The same with Bert and his crew. They have a feeling that he's really going to be there. Bert 
not quite sure, but still maybe benefit of the doubt at this point. As the bells start to ring for midnight, we see John's shoes. He's up on the roof, and he pulls out an envelope, and it's a letter. He starts to climb over this railing, and it's DB's voice that stops him, saying, It will do you no good to commit suicide. All evidence will be removed immediately, so no one will ever know, and you'll have accomplished nothing. John says he's mailed a copy of this letter, so it will still go out there. Anne, in her hysterical sick state, has run up to the roof as well, begging him, saying, I love you, we'll start over. This movement isn't dead, otherwise they wouldn't be here. It's all of this fear. They fear this. That's why they're trying to stop it. But we can start clean and honest. They lay on the Judeo-Christian imagery super heavy in this final act. Definitely. There is the moment when Arnold invokes Judas when John Doe is there at the meeting with all the fat cats. Gleason mentions how the Pontius Pilots have won this one, and now she is making direct comparisons to Jesus, saying that another guy once did this, and they're still afraid of him 2,000 years later. And also that sense of faith, Bert talking about, we believed in you even though we didn't see you, Mm -hmm. another, you know, Jesus thing. They beg him, we're just going to restart the club. Just come with us. Anne collapses. He carries her out. The end, as Connell says, there they are, Norton. The people try and lick that. So the end. So Gary Cooper is Jesus, and Barbara Stanwyck is Mary Magdalene, and he carries her off, and then we've got Or maybe just Mary, since she's really into her own dad. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. Who knows? And then we've got the Da Vinci Code. 50 years later. Yeah. What do you think about the ending? Because we know that Frank Capra tested five possible endings. One specifically in which he does commit suicide, which I can imagine would come off as a big downer. That's the one I would favor if I was making it. This one rings a little hollow and sort of undercuts everything. If you are going to commit to this idea, I know... Regis Toomey made a great pitch that you're more valuable to people walking around, but I don't know that I'm 100% convinced that this is the best ending. I don't know. What are the rest of the choices? There was also an ending in which Anne persuades him not to jump off City Hall, just herself. Without Norton there, without the John Doe Club there, just the two of them. It must be a appeal to love, I'm guessing. I okay. haven't read it. What I think is interesting, and to me comes off as apocryphal, given the whole newspaper making stuff up, this idea that this final version that they went with was inspired by an anonymous letter given to Capra, also signed by John Doe, this letter, which said, I have seen your film with many different endings, all bad, I thought. The only thing that can keep John Doe from jumping are the John Doe's themselves, if they ask him. So who knows if that was actually the case. I like to think that maybe that was real and Gary Cooper wrote it. (laughs) I don't know. Sure. Works as well as anything. Or just to me. So we have the potential ending where she saves him. Then we have the ending where the John Does save him. There was also an alternate ending that stopped where Gleason delivered the line, Well, boys, you can chalk up another one to the Pontius Pilots. Period. Another downer ending, but not as much downer as suicide. 
another ending where John actually leaps, commits suicide, and is shown after his death cradled in the colonel's arms, who says, you poor sucker, over and over again. Wow. And finally, one where he's transformed by the Christmas spirit. He offers his Christmas wishes to Norton, who surprisingly converts, which is not uncommon for that character to do in a Frank Capra movie. True. And he orders Connell to put the real suicide letter and the true story in the newspaper. Do you want me to tell you what I think the ending should have been? Sure. Anne pushes him over the railing (laughs) and then proclaims, I am John Doe. (laughs) And she takes over everything. That'd be pretty exciting. Yeah. And And certainly not something you would see every day. And find somebody to spank her. Done the end. The end. (laughs) Okay. Before we completely wrap this up, I have a couple of questions. The main one being... And I think I've given away how I feel about it because of my whole bit about getting up and trying again every day. How do you ultimately feel that what is empowering and what is benevolent is still a fraud? How problematic is that? I think I'm much more of a Pollyanna when it comes to things like that. Okay. I probably have a bigger capacity to believe and keep trying. I did mention that I do believe in the idea of these shadowy, evil figures as shaped by the movies in Mm -hmm. my life. But I see every day people trying to do their best and doing small things to encourage each other and keep moving forward and make good things happen in the world. I believe that that's always going to be our way forward. So is that, to follow up, why you specifically picked this to do an episode about No, it was much more of that place of laying in the dark with you and being really frightened and seeing the evil empire rise up and this film coming to mind as not necessarily prescient, but never ending. I'm glad you made that point because they do specifically mention that they at least allude to it briefly in the movie and it helps a lot to think about it on a larger historical spectrum, rather than thinking we are in the worst possible place right now. Right. There have always been these men that commit these evil acts, and there have always been people that rise up against them. And it is not necessarily the end. It is not necessarily the worst thing that's ever going to happen. It will ebb and flow, like I said. It will go back and forth. But this movie was really helpful in that regard to put it in perspective and remind me that... In Rome, in Greece, you can go as far back as you want. You can go back to the very first caveman that said, you should give me that thing that's yours. This struggle has always gone on and will always go on. Also, uh, another full disclosure, when I remembered it, I thought that it took place at New Year's Eve, so I thought it would be a good January choice <laughs> Okay. <laughs> holiday movie. <laughs> well, Happy New Year anyway. So, I'm a Pollyanna, I guess. So are you glad you chose it? Very glad. Mostly for all of these different conflicts that we brought up and felt and new ways that we saw it. I love that that has happened. Well, good. I'm glad you chose it, too. How about you choose something else for us? What's your recommendation this time? I didn't get into this a ton in the discussion. It figured a little bit more into my notes. But one conflict that's brought up is the problem I have with a lot of romantic comedies. 
in that you create the image of your lover out of your own, or there seems to be no discernible reason why people should be attracted to each other in these films. And I felt like that was an element of this, that they were both blanks attracted to blanks because they look good. But anyway, setting that aside, it inspired my recommendation of a romantic pairing that I think really works. These people in this film have earned the attraction to each other. Okay. And the female lead is incredibly smart. So my recommendation is Desk Set from uh-huh. 1957. It's a good one. Directed by Walter Lang with Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn. It's also incredibly funny. I just watched it again the other day and I laughed through the whole thing. It's really funny. (laughs) He does a bunch of ad-libbing that's Mm -hmm. hilarious in it, by the way. So I can't recommend this enough. It's about the computerization of a television network's research department. Katherine Hepburn is the head of the research department. Spencer Tracy is the efficiency expert and the computer expert brought in to revolutionize this department. They clash. Eventually, they fall in love. As I mentioned, I feel like they really earn what they have created. This could only be topped by Nick Nolte and Julia Roberts, I would say, right? I love trouble. (laughs) It's a battle of wits. It's incredibly funny. It's charming. It's also a holiday film. Mm Mm-hmm. And how about you? Is it I Love Trouble? If I had thought of that before, and I knew you were doing that one, maybe. But no. Instead, I'm going to let the pendulum swing all the way back to my cynical side. All right. And I'm going to recommend Ace in the Hole from 1951. So good. Directed by Billy Wilder, starring Kirk Douglas and Jan Sterling. I think you mean Kirk Douglas. (laughs) It's about... A journalist, a cynical, disgraced reporter who stops at nothing to regain a job on a major newspaper, echoing a lot of the themes at the beginning of this film. In addition to that, also echoing themes in this film, you have a gullible, easily manipulated public. (laughs) One of the things I love about the critical response to this movie and how out of touch the media is with itself sometimes, Bosley Crowther prominent film critic for the New York Times, who got practically everything wrong in retrospect. He said, Mr. Wilder has let his imagination so fully take command of his yarn that it presents not only a distortion of journalistic practice, but something of a dramatic grotesque. Clearly, Bosley Crowther does not know what he's talking about. When you watch this, there is nothing exaggerated about it. It seems believable from start to finish. That could be the sophistication of an audience in 2016. Looking back, you may not have been as aware and in the know that people were so crassly manipulative and evil. It was definitely a more innocent time, but someone who is working for the New York Times, that guy is extremely out of touch. His name is Bosley Crowther. (laughs) Not not your everyman, not your next door neighbor necessarily. Well, he missed the mark on this one because it is brutal and completely on point in terms of the depths that humans will sink to to preserve and or get ahead. I guess if your sensibilities get offended, they would be offended by this. And evidently his did. It's fantastic. It is probably the first critical and commercial failure that Billy Wilder had, which in retrospect seems crazy 
to me. It was just that unpalatable, I guess, for audiences and critics at the time. But when you look at it now, it seems completely on the money. It doesn't miss a beat. Highly recommend. Well, we kicked off 2017 with two great recommendations, <laughs> as usual. Desk Set and Ace in the Hole. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 38, kicking off the new year in style. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to find us on Facebook or Instagram, just search for Magic Lantern Podcast. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to say thanks to everyone who has given us feedback or shared the show since last time. Scott Morris, Drew Tavendale, and Craig Eastman at Fuds on Film. They just put out their year-end episode reviewing their favorites and not-so-favorites of 2016, and I highly recommend it. It's very good. Twitter user Fast Furious, our friend Jane Sankner, Grindhouse Dave, Mark Herney and Aaron West at Criterion Close-Up, Melbourne Cinematic, Brian Sauer, Travis Trudell, Tim Lego, Eric Parkinson, and Greg Nordland, who sent us a really nice note today. I wanted to say a special thanks to Greg for reaching out and taking the time to write us a message. Thanks, Greg. We appreciate it. It meant a lot to me as well. It really made my day. Thank you. And I wanted to say thanks also to Matteo Boscarol. After we talked so much about Frederick Wiseman in our last episode, he tweeted a picture at us of his Frederick Wiseman Integral box set, which had us green with envy. I want every volume of that so bad after seeing that. Thanks, Mateo. That was really cool. We are on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. If you would like to kick off the year in a big way for us and leave us a nice review, we would certainly appreciate it. And finally, if you would like to find all of our other episodes and our donation button, you can go to our website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 